0: He's looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real. It's podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're winding the clock back to the days of the silent era of film, studying the great Louise Brooks. And for this job, we've got the great Amanda Craftcheck, a.k.a. Simp for the Devil, returning for the third time on Wrong Reel or? I, I think it
1: is the third time. Yeah, thank you for having me again, James.
0: Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you back. You came for the first two times for our pre-code Hollywood episodes which were an absolute yeah. blast and this whole, the late 20s, early 30s period is such a special period in film history and I so rarely get a chance to explore this on Wrong Reel so I'm just thrilled and delighted every time you want to geek out about these films with me.
1: Oh, as do I. Thank you so much.
0: Well, catch us up. What has been happening? Um, there's a little secret chat that I've created with you on uh, on twitter with uh martin kessler and what's nick's last name remind me i can't remember oh gosh um i feel bad i'm sorry nick (laughs) um all right so nick i apologize but your name's just nick on twitter it is (laughs) that end that end down at that end down but uh if you want me to give you full credit in any case we've had this little secret conversation going on about sekiro shadows die twice from from soft and yeah. before we get into the, the weeds of silent film, we got to talk about this game a little bit. I think this actually might be sure. the first time I've had a chance to talk about it with anybody in a public forum. So for people out wow. there don't know what the hell it is I'm talking about, what is Sekiro Shadows Die Twice?
1: Uh, it's the newest game from uh, the developers of all the the Souls games, the Dark Souls, uh, Demon Souls, the, their first one, um, also uh, Bloodborne, um, and it's Sekiro. And it, what's different about it is that there's no real RPG elements. You're kind of stuck with a lot of the the abilities that you're initially set with in the game, and then you can upgrade as you go along. But it's a little different. And also, what makes it different is it's uh, feudal Japan. Um, you play as a shinobi. And there's a stealth element to it, very unlike their their previous games, uh, which makes it interesting. And then you also have this really cool prosthetic arm uh, that allows you to kind of move around and maneuver and get away from boss battles, which is somewhat easier in some regards to Dark Souls, where you can escape if needed. Um, so it's it's a very difficult game that really rewards you uh, the more you play it and the more you're willing to continue on and forge ahead. Um, which is something I love about these games is that that challenge that they have, where it feels like it's borderline impossible but the, the longer you stick with it uh, the better you get and the more you can move along in the game um, and it's they're a little linear but they do allow you to to explore different areas and approach things in different ways if, if you would like
0: This is the first one I've played by FromSoft that I feel like there are legitimate skill walls you hit. Because with the the Dark Souls games, what you can always do, if you hit a boss you can't beat, you can go off and grind for a while and Mm -hmm. raise your strength or raise your stamina or whatever and give yourself a little edge. But with this game, you only get more powerful by killing bosses and assembling these prayer beads and unlocking these memories. So you're pretty much screwed. So you can't level up a character. (laughs) You have to level up as a player. And like yes. when I first beat Genichiro, because I was away from the game for a couple weeks because of work stuff. And when I came back to it, I, I hit a little bit of a wall with him. And I think it took me about mm-hmm. maybe 10 or 12 times to beat him. And I was like, am I ever going to beat this guy? Like, what the hell? And then yeah. I went online and I saw that some people were like wiping out him like 50, 100 times. <laughs> I was like, all right, <laughs> clearly some other people are suffering with Genichiro as well. But when you yeah. when you finally do down that boss, you're like, I have become better at the game, and everything else will be a little bit easier moving forward. And it's just its yeah. such an incredible feeling of accomplishment.
1: Yeah, you even feel that way with the mini-bosses, honestly. I've actually struggled more with some of the mini-bosses than I have the actual bosses like, um, gosh, which is named Jugoku the drunkard, for example. I think I was stuck on him a little longer than I was um, Lady Butterfly to be honest. Yeah, uh, Lady
0: Butterfly was... beat me, I think, like five or six times and then I asked y'all <laughs> for some, some advice and then uh, I was able yeah. to, because really, Nick came up with a solution for how to totally cheese the first phase and it worked. Oh, she she never touched <laughs> yeah. me in the first phase because they're just doing that one move on a loop and so this game does have glitches and exploits that if you choose to take advantage of them they are there if you do enough homework. I mean, there's some bosses where you're just gonna have to get good as they say with like because right now i'm right at the point where i have the option of either the guardian ape uh the first two headless or wow. this girl with uh these like really fast knives and so I, I but i like having options not being like trapped on like on like one particular spot and so yeah. but if i kill the girl with the knives then i will assemble another necklace so i'll have a slightly higher stats for the guardian yeah. ape. so i think i'm gonna go after her first
1: Yeah, that's kind of like you said, probably one of the good things about it, because initially when I was stuck on uh, the drunkard, I was able to uh, go elsewhere and try to tackle I tried going after a headless in one portion of the game. Uh, So it does allow you that freedom. but yeah, you're right about the, the cheesing the bosses. I was reading a little bit about that online and I, I'm kind of against doing that. Um, but then again, what necessarily is, I mean, if you're utilizing some of the moons the game gives you, I think, I mean, you know, you could kind of argue so that you
0: like, yeah, like you're supposed you're gonna, to cheat and murder and kill right, and murder exactly. your way through this game. And so yeah. philosophically, if this game gives you a, an edge, it's, it's so hard across the board. Like when you finally do see a little moment of relief, then you really got to yeah. go for it. Exactly.
1: Um, now, where and where do you stand
0: on the controversy surrounding some, uh, the, some people saying that the game is too hard and that it deserves an easy mode?
1: Um, I think that this is the, the, the way that the, de- the developers intended it. And um, I, I'm not trying to say get good, but kind of, I mean, just, just don't give up, play it more, try different, you know, alternative waves of approaching different bosses. I mean, we have the ability now, which I didn't have like 20 years ago to go on the internet and get some tips and advice if needed. Um, so, I mean, just use that to your advantage. I mean, I think if it's too hard for you, like I said, you just don't give up or move on to a different game. There's nothing wrong with that.
0: Well, also notice the notice that game gives you little rooms where you can practice or certain- things like when i was first struggling on ganichiro i found this area in the um in the ashina castle where in two areas right side by side there's one guy with a spear who would either do um, like thrust attacks or he would swing it horizontally and then right around the corner was basically like a samurai, but who's like a little bit tough. He wasn't, he wasn't wear a helmet, but he has a lot of the similar samurai moves where you need to jump into the air and stomp on his head. And I was like, yeah. oh, well, if I just practice on these two guys over and over and over again, I will see the majority of the moves that Genichiro has minus the bow attacks. And after I practiced yeah. on those two guys for a while, then I was able to go up to Genichiro and apart from just getting used to blocking all those goddamn bow attacks and getting used to that third <laughs> phase when he's throwing the lightning bolts around, but there are yeah. opportunities to practice and grow as a player throughout, scattered throughout the game.
1: Yeah, there is, and I've, I spend a lot of time with these games just grinding over and over again in the same area, kind of like I used to when I played a lot of Final Fantasy. So I spent a lot of time at the uh, the Castle Gates Right after you beat, like at the first major boss, Gaiobu or whatever his name the is on the horse. horse, yeah. Um, and there's that, that gate area where they there's like three rats that if you kill, you can go get another skill tree to open up for you without me spoiling how you do that. So I kind of just have been in that vicinity over and over and over again, um, which which is tedious, but it allows you to be able to unlock more skills in the game. And there's quite a few really difficult enemies there, so yeah, there's there's ways around kind of learning how to to better maneuver yourself as as a shinobi and, and how to have a hands up on the game. And I think a lot of people too are making the mistake of, of realizing that you don't play this like a souls game. It's a lot about timing. Playing and it like a souls game
0: is the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah. I, I was like screaming in rage the first like day I had the game because all the skills I learned in Dark Souls Are worthless. Dark Souls is all about countering and rolling and blocking and taking your time and studying. Where here, if you take your time, they just heal up, they get their posture back. You gotta stay on the boss in their face and it becomes like you're like tap dancing with an opponent and it's yeah. you know it's deflect, deflect, deflect attack, def- deflect and it becomes like music to your ears going back and forth and inventing a new combat system when you've had all these other games that are as successful as they are I think it's a stroke of genius to completely reinvent the wheel but still somehow make it feel like a FromSoft game.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, because that was that was my my problem at first is I was dodging way too much, and then I was either just getting destroyed by the bosses, or like you said, they would just heal up. Even if I did like a stealth attack with a death blow, and I took half of the boss down, and then I was dodging, it was just like, well, is, this is this is really stupid. And also, so then they when you, you,
0: if you back up totally way the hell you. away, <laughs> they will just like do some crazy fifty foot lunge attack where they just fly across the room and fuck you up. So it's like yeah. keeping your distance offers no advantage. <laughs>
1: <laughs> whatsoever yeah. Yeah, not at all. So that's it's kind of refreshing, like you said, because just to think that with all the success that this company has had with their games critically and, and by people that love playing games and the difficulty them for them to totally approach in a totally different way, it kind of just threw me off at first. So it kind of puts everybody that is used to their previous games and people that have never tried them before all on the same level in terms of that playing field, so we can all kind of learn it together, which makes it nice online to be able to have everybody learning it at once.
0: What I worry though is that in the absence of PvP and co op. <laughs> (laughs) that the uh, shelf life of the game might be shortened in in the absence of some DLC. I think the game is so challenging and so fascinating and it's such a beautiful, wonderful, especially if you play it in Japanese, which I I strongly recommend. But part of what keeps the other games going as long as they go is that there's a a thriving PvP scene. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, how many times can you clear the game before it starts to get tiresome? But I, I do think some DLC will help keep it alive. But I don't sure, yeah. know, like Dark Souls 3 had a pretty long shelf life because the PVP community was thriving, but my theory on the difficulty is that if FromSoft were to cave to the demands of people screaming for easy modes, they would actually <laughs> probably cut their audience in half. The yes. challenge and the bragging rights of doing well in these games is part of the appeal, I think, for a lot of the players. And for me, it's the closest I come to the thrill I experience playing World of Warcraft when my guild would take down a boss. And there were sometimes bosses that would take us 100 tries before we would get them down, and we would scream and go berserk and high-five and just go insane. Right. Getting a tough, a tough boss down and Sekiro gives me a similar emotion. And so that's why I really love this environment.
1: Yeah, the games give me a similar vibe to when I obsessively tried to complete different really difficult Nest games at a friend's house growing up. Like we we mastered Mega Man Two together, and that's that a game one. is that game is not easy. And uh, I played it so, in real
0: time in seventh grade when it came out.
1: Oh wow, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, so you know, playing it just reminds me of when games were were not forgiving, and you know, you die, you start all over from the beginning, and and you know, obviously in the Nest days, so it just kind of offers me that difficulty because as much as I like. A lot of the, the modern games that are out, they don't punish you for for learning how to play at all. You have infinite lives or you start right back where you die. So there's no real... In your opinion, what is the all-time
0: Challenge. toughest meat grinder on the NES? Cuz the NES, granted, I got my I got the NES when I was in 5th grade, so I just sucked. So a lot of games became meat grinders <laughs> even if they weren't that difficult, but like the yeah. first Castlevania for me was a classic meat grinder where I never cleared it in 5th grade. I just I would I hit the brick wall in the second last boss and I just couldn't get and yeah. there was no internet to teach you no. how to, you know, exploit bosses and that sort of thing.
1: Um. Honestly, probably the my, the Ninja Gaiden games, and oh especially the first one. And then um, I'm trying to think of what else. That's actually uh, a gh- perfect ghouls comparison. and ghosts. Honestly, Ghoul, yeah,
0: yeah, ghosts and goblins and ghouls, ghouls and ghosts. Those were ruthless. Yeah. But uh, Ninja Gaiden, it's. I feel like that's in the same tradition as Sekiro: <laughs> Shadows Die Twice. And anybody yeah. out there who likes you know Tatsuya Nakadai films or Toshirō Mifune films, and if you've ever played a game, I cannot recommend this game highly enough. Granted, it there is a skill check and there is a gut check to progress. But in terms of the atmosphere and the environment mm-hmm. and just the way the characters talk, it is such an otherworldly, cool experience. And yeah. I just—I can't remember the last time I had this much fun playing a new game immediately upon release.
1: Exactly. Uh, like I said, it feels like these games feel like um, I'm experiencing those those older games I played as a kid kind of all over again, but with the, the new technology and new different engines they have now. I mean, that, that's why they interest me. It gives me a challenge that, I mean, as much as I'm looking forward to talking about newer games, I really enjoy the Borderlands games. Uh, and I'm Fuck yeah. not. The first
0: one I played yeah. for like a month straight and didn't come up for air. Like, no bath. They're no, no, wonderful. No bathroom yeah. breaks. <laughs> no social <They're> just, life. <laughs>
1: To, to me, they're like this perfect combination of, of everything, you know, playing with friends, uh, the RPG leveling system, just the loot system, uh, the ability to explore and, and approach bosses the way you want. And then just the way that the, the difficulty, the way that the difficulty increases. And just, like I said, how much fun you can have playing with some people you enjoy playing games with. I mean, just kind of everything's good about it. And it offers a single player mode. I mean, there's so many first-person shooter-type games and online games that don't offer that. And me personally, I like the single-player too. So it kind of gives you a lot of everything. And so I'm really looking forward to Borderlands 3. Not to change the subject, but yeah,
0: I'm so excited. Borderlands 1 absolutely blew my mind. For some reason, I didn't finish Borderlands 2, but Borderlands 1 definitely consumed my attention for a good long while. Well, even though it has nothing to do with our current conversation, we're going (laughs) to switch gears now to, instead of talking about really, really new media, we're going to talk about some really (laughs) old media. We're going to wind the clock back about 90 years. And this is a a Louise Brooks episode, but it also incorporates directors like William Wellman and G.W. Pabst. And we've never talked about Pabst on this podcast, but we have talked about William Wellman a little bit, but set the stage for us, if you will. Where was Louise Brooks in her career... At the beginning of this story that we're going to tell, because my, I guess my earliest knowledge of her is in the Howard Hawkes film, A Girl in Every Port. And I've seen the clips that she's in, but it seems like that was what drew her to Pabst's attention, attention. But what was, where was her star, what was her, like, her relative star power prior to these three films that we're going to be discussing today?
1: Okay, sure. Um, well, honestly, she didn't want to be an actress uh, at all. Uh, she wanted to be what she was. Uh, she was a, a child prodigy dancer, like at the age of six, thanks to her mother in I think Cherryvale, uh, Kansas, and uh, ended up at 15 going on a train um, to to be in Denishawn Studios, which at the time was probably the the most. I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was basically the birthplace of modern dance in the United States in New York City, and so here she is, 15 years old, and new york city and denishan until they uh ended up firing her because she didn't follow their their rigid morality rules to put it nicely and uh then she ended up being in Scandals, which was like a showgirl thing on the kind of on the same level. I don't think as good as the as the Ziegfeld Follies and then ended up being a Ziegfeld Follies girl. Um, And then from there, um, ended up getting a contract with Paramount, which she was kind of against at first to to make some movies. Um, And uh, basically... Uh, she ended up did really hating Hollywood uh, she felt like they just kind of abused her didn't treat her like a person uh, and, and from there ended up getting an invitation from Pops she was looking for his Lulu for his for his version of Pandora's Box and made the trip to Berlin but she kind of went through all these stages you know aside from Dennis Sean firing her to kind of always quitting I think when things became, became really good she would just quit and leave early and she really only seemed to love of New York until she ended up going to Berlin where pops kind of gave her that Royal welcome. And, and she was his Lulu, even though B- Berlin wasn't excited about that at first.
0: And when did she start becoming a cultural kind of fashion icon? Cause it seems like of all the various, hairstyles and body types and just like personalities in the 20s. She definitely seems to have personified the jazz age that Fitzgerald enjoyed writing about so much.
1: Yeah, she's kind of the I, to me and from, from things I've read, she's like the quintessential like flapper in almost every single way. Um, I know in like 26, uh, there was another silent film actress, Colleen Moore, that claimed that Louise Brooks stole her look. Um, but from everything I've noticed, Louise had it way prior to that. that I saw that a
0: sophomore that, high school pick of Louise Brooks, and she it was something. She had a different first name, though. Something like Louise was her middle name, but she mm-hmm. didn't. Quite, she didn't look like Lulu yet, but you could yes. tell the. She has a
1: similar haircut. The seed,
0: the seed is there, so she was already yeah. working on it, like as a, as a young girl.
1: Yeah, and if you look at like all these pictures of women, uh, various types of, I guess, celebrity, Hollywood, whatever, what have you, they their hairstyles were very different from her. So she really, really stood
0: out on that yeah, like front. Like, looks nothing like her, and like, yeah, yeah Garbo
1: doesn't, Dietrich yeah. doesn't, yeah. So she had that look, and uh, and unfortunately, though, I think because she just wanted to up and leave, it seemed when things got good, maybe she was afraid she was going to get comfortable. Um, I think she maybe herself, in my opinion, maybe was afraid of being rejected somewhat uh she was she was short-lived in hollywood and then i think that that cult though i mean she she kind of was considered a quintessential manhattan uh like socialite new yorker um prior to leaving and going to berlin like she loved the the nightclub scene
0: like so much that they didn't like perhaps have to like make her uh, agree to stop partying so much
1: when yeah because she was arriving on set like completely hungover, and I think he Pops was also in love with her and the fact that she
0: justifiably w- so
1: really didn't explore that with him I think also made him jealous I mean she's going out with other men she's you know out late at night with them not him I mean so there's, there's layers so to that so she's just
0: wrecked with envy and desire
1: oh yeah exactly and then she ended up having a, a one night stand with him one night so I think that just honestly made it worse so, yeah I guess
0: for some guys, they could probably get it out of their system and say, "Oh, she's just a woman like any other, and I can stop like placing her on a pedestal." But sometimes they will become obsessed with you, and then you're totally <laughs> screwed. Yeah. So.
1: I, I think from everything I've seen, these movies, and and just like the you know, excerpts I've read on her and and her, and Pops, he was definitely in love and obsessed with her, which which I understand. I mean, if you look at all the women at the time, she was just entirely different and and independent, and really didn't care what anybody thought or felt of her, which I think is also why her her Hollywood career. was So short lived. I mean, she angered Paramount so much that they spread a lie around when the sound era was starting.
0: That she refused that her, to like re-record her dialogue or something yeah, like that.
1: Yeah, and that her voice was terrible, which is far from the truth. If you listen to her voice later on, it's not and at Clara
0: all. Clara it was for real. Like She apparently like exploded a bunch of speakers the first time she spoke into a microphone. She had like some horrible, <laughs> horrible yeah. accent. But yeah, a lot of actors and actresses did not, make, did not make the transition. But it seems like she was definitely quite a baller when it came to her social life. I mean, she was hanging out with like William Randolph Hearst and Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Like She definitely was plugged in with the elite of the elite when it came to power in California. California. California when she was out there.
1: Yeah, she had a a two-month affair with Charlie Chaplin when he came to New York in 1925 for his Gold Rush premiere. You know, as far as William Randolph Hearst, he uh, was—I guess you could say—I don't know if you say dating or having an affair because his wife refused to divorce him, and they were like separated. And I think he was with uh, Marion Davies at the time for quite a while. uh,
0: One of Louis Brooks' buddies.
1: Exactly. So she was going to uh, what they called the ranch uh, out in, in California, which San was San Simeon.
0: I visited it. It's killer. Yeah, it's basically it's a Xanadu from Citizen Kane.
1: Incredible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and she was spent a lot of her free time there, and sometimes with her her first husband there.
0: One of the cool things I've ever seen as the tennis courts at San Simeon, where you have the the white lines dictating like where the court is. There are these little glass tiles periodically, which probably mm-hmm. would screw up the uh, the bounce of the ball if the ball were to hit those glass tiles but what you could do you could look through those glass tiles and you would look down about 50 or 60 feet to an underground pool that was below the tennis courts so you could see all the action going on down below like that's something i'd never seen before didn't even know existed but i was i was very impressed
1: there's insane there's that's there's a story um about how william randolph Hearst just didn't care because he was just so rich money i guess just didn't matter to him but like i there's some story about him sitting at the poolside where he felt that some tree was in his way. So this is like mid late twenties. Have it taken spent, away
0: immediately? <laughs>
1: yeah. $10,000 to move it. I mean, just, just move it. You know, I, so clearly money was, it was no,
0: no issue. Um, he was a powerful man.
1: Yeah. Uh, so she did spend some time there. Uh, and, uh, her first husband, Eddie Sutherland, Occasionally, but that marriage ended pretty quickly because they essentially got married, and then he went back to Hollywood, and she hated Hollywood, and she went back to New York.
0: Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about our Hollywood career before we get into the German period. But we sure. mentioned William Wellman. We had, we talked about him twice in the last uh, the last episode we did together. But yeah. Beggars of Life, 1928. I mean, here we are. We are knocking at the door at the end of the sound. I think the jazz singer was, what, 1927? So we're already seeing some transition where movies would be released, both the silent and sound, as gu- yes. gu- Guy Madden was famous uh, or loves to describe these movies. A lot of them were what they called goat gland movies, where you would kind of shoot them as a silent movie and then shove a bunch of sound sequence. End. and it seems like with Beggars <laughs> yeah. of Life, we had some of that at play as well. But what is the story of Beggars of Life, and how does Louise Brooks fit into it?
1: Sure, she's a big, important part of this story. Um, and uh, as far as I know, um, prior to uh, Marlena Dietrich, for example, uh, being in her in her very uh, her, her masculine suits that she would wear, Yours got Louise here dressed as a boy. Uh, what happens in the beginning of the story is it looks like her legal guardian. Uh, tries to, uh, I guess, rape her is, is my the way that I, I took that scene. Uh, and she ends up in a matter of self-defense, killing him. And uh, you have, um gosh, I, what's his name that was in Wings? Uh, uh, Richard Arlen. Yeah, the hobo. Yeah, the hobo comes in and essentially sees the murder and is willing to to kind of rescue her from any sort of legal involvement, and off they go, they escape, um, and they end up. Most of the story takes place on a train with a bunch of hobos. One of which, the hobo king, is, is Wallace Berry, which is wonderful, um, and he's excellent in it. And so, uh, so no, they the Oklahoma
0: of, Red or something like that, or yeah,
1: yeah, and uh, just what I thought was interesting too is apparently like uh, in, in takes uh, when they were on the train together wallace berry to kind of i guess make the scene a little more personal he uh, was drawing pictures and like fake graffiti with chalk kind of behind them um so there's a little details you can see when you watch the film but i I just love how she's got this this she's still very much beautiful very feminine but she's dressed like a boy to escape Uh, and then further on in the scene it's kind of learned that she that there's that she escaped and uh, she's dressed as a boy. So there's this, this really rid- kind of somewhat ridiculous, I feel, uh, dress that she ends up wearing at
0: some you point. Know, it's the most ridiculous outfit <laughs> that a, a woman has ever worn on the screen yeah, in human I history. She goes from – I mean because for a lot of girls when they dress so as a boy, perfect. it like accentuates their feminine attributes. It makes them like sure. way hotter than they would be in their normal circumstances. And at one point when they finally do Dollar Up, she looks like – Almost like like a baby, like <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. She's got a bonnet and the whole thing. And yeah. I read, yeah, I, I have to, might have to check on this, but I'm pretty sure Edith had designed that that costume that she was wearing. It's that was ridiculous. It, it
0: is such an eyesore. Yeah, yeah that's the. <laughs> I think the my one knock against this movie. It's absolutely yes. delightful to watch, and it's got some killer like train stunts train and scene? stuff like that. The but that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, William Wellman, I mean, this is the guy who did Public Enemy. This is the guy who did uh, a ton of cool flicks, and he's just Mm -hmm. as rough and tough as they come. But I like how he really got – we talked about it before about how during the uh, early sound days, a lot of times your camera would be locked in a box. But this movie's got the camera definitely moving fast as hell. Uh, And I really – I think my favorite scenes were just the kind of the camp life at night where – Everybody's kind of pitching in and trying to find some booze or trying to find some food. And I like seeing, like, Wallace Beery, how he was kind of a son of a bitch in this movie. He's like, when I, like, when I join a gang, it becomes my gang. And if there's a girl yes. around, she becomes my girl. He's definitely one of these kind of, you know, just gorillas who thinks, like, if there's something to be consumed or owned within reach, it belongs to him. And he's a big, strong, terrifying-looking dude. And obviously he becomes quite a, an adversary for Louis Brooks.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned, too, um, as we've discussed before, that the camera moves with Wellman. Uh, he had a lot of his actors, especially in this movie, do their own stunts. So quite a few scenes are, in fact, Louise climbing around on the train. Uh, and she claimed at one point that um, something along the lines and the degree of uh, the fact that he... Didn't really care about his actors or their well-being. So there's there's a little bit, a lot of what you see happening in the film is is these people actually running all around the train as the train's going on high speed.
0: And apparently the wreckage is there to this very day from when that yeah. the, the the climactic final scene.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and also uh, Richard Arlen, she mentioned, was really jealous of her. I think it's kind of important to mention because she kind of very quickly had this contract with Paramount very quickly was making these movies. And and he was trying to do that for years or he was on the industry for years. And she had some, instance with him where he was drunk with whiskey and like threatened her one night and insulted her and and said that she couldn't act and that she wasn't pretty and her eyes were too close together so it's there, there was definitely a little bit of that i feel like once i learned that and i re-explored the film that you can kind of feel a little bit of this 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 vibe that they might have had between them this 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 jealousy that he may have had of her
0: I, i'm sorry to arlen but when you look at louis brooks you can tell within 5 seconds why she would become a movie star like i'm sorry yeah. she's yeah. working with some <laughs> cer- with certain physical advantages and it's not just the fact that she's so physically beautiful but she's so athletic and she moves so well that she just i'm am sorry he he's he doesn't have a a a foot to stand on or a, any ground to stand on but it is interesting bringing up the bit about her supposedly not being able to act because apparently that was a common complaint with a lot of viewers at the time. They were used to these very theatrical pantomime heavy performances with a lot of like really exaggerated gestures and things like that. And she has a much more naturalistic approach and she really trusted the camera to do a lot of work for her in particular with the G.W. Patch films that have so many just astonishingly beautiful close-ups. So in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like she just kind of instinctively knew that with the camera up in her face, as close as it was, she didn't need to go all in on these wildly theatrical je- gestures.
1: Yeah, and she also was a, a professional dancer, not a professional actress. She didn't go to any acting schools. And so she kind of and mentioned, um, I read her memoirs uh, that she released in 1982 um it's lulu in hollywood um and uh she mentioned in there that she kind of was just a lot of times just playing herself because she didn't know what to do and so there's kind of and and some people claim there's a few critics that claim that maybe she in fact invented modern acting because if you watch her performances in her films, like Beggars of Life, and then you watch other films of the era, like Bringing Back Clara You watch It, The It Girl. The acting styles are very different. They're much more exaggerated. And Louise has always been somewhat subtle, and I think somewhat just trying to figure out exactly what to do in any particular scene, which is, I think, why Pops really complimented her in her acting style.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding how she parted ways with Paramount, because Paramount effectively blacklisted her, but there was a lot of debate about whether or not they were going to raise her pay as promised, and they appeared to be reluctant to do so, and she was pissed, which ultimately led to her being interested in uh, working overseas, which ended, and uh, artistically, obviously, ended up working out very well for her, but it it seemed like it was a complicated scenario where Pabst was kind of sort of pursuing Marlena Dietrich and was using his negotiations with Louise Brooks as a way of kind of, you know, at least having some sort of leverage or having another path to go. But shine a light on this, because it seems like there's a lot of he said, she said, and we're talking about shit that happened 90 years ago. But what's your interpretation of what finally led to her going abroad to Europe?
1: Well, you're right. Paramount was kind of hounding her. And, and honestly,
0: they were just trying to every time she
1: refused them, she just, they just offered her more money. Um, and it was in regards to uh, the Canary murder case that I think was 1929 with William Powell. I don't know if you've seen it. I've not, uh, James. Yeah, but it was it was essentially like a lot of films during that transition period from talkies to sound. um, They the studio decided, well, you know what, the money's in the talkies, so now we need to convert this into a sound picture, and they wanted her to do, you know, the voice. Uh, for herself, and, and kind of dubbed that into the different scenes, and she, and they wanted more of her involvement, and she essentially refused them. Every offer, she kept. They kept coming back with more money, kept refusing them. And uh, one of the reason uh, that that she didn't stay with Paramount was because she was obsessed with George Marshall at the time. And she was having, she was kind of romantically involved with him, and and then that's when uh, pops kind of gave her that ticket to just give up on Paramount, um, and go off to to Berlin. Uh, but I kind of take it a little bit as as it's it's both sides that were the issue at hand here. It's it's Paramount, kind of uh, not really. I don't think valuing her as an actress. Which who did they really value? I mean, it's kind of when you stop making money, I no longer care. Um. And at the same time, uh, I think Louise being uncomfortable with ever staying in one place, she's constantly just just giving up and, and going elsewhere and trying something new. So I think it's kind of a combination of the two. But then, like I mentioned earlier, Paramount, uh, you know, eventually just gave up on her and started spreading lies that her voice was was garbage. And she couldn't make that transition, which ultimately, I think, destroyed her career entirely.
0: Yeah, I mean, she basically, she, what, by 1938, retired from movie making altogether?
1: Mm-hmm. Her last movie was um, with a very young John Wayne, um, and uh, it was just a B western. And if you watch it, I mean, the movie I think it's Overland Stage Riders is what's what it's called. You watch it; it's just your standard. They were pumping those those B movie westerns out like crazy at the time. Yeah, and
0: before Stagecoach, he cranked out a lot of forgettable kind of yeah. intangible flicks.
1: Uh, she, she said when she worked opposite him in the picture that uh, she felt like that she was working alongside like a god of Greek mythology she just couldn't get over <laughs> his stature and his voice
0: well it sounds like um, she enjoyed the company of yeah, men and exactly. wasn't afraid to spend the time in the company of men who were tall and strong and liked to have a good time
1: yeah, it's funny though the first time I watched it it looks nothing like her and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's older it has everything to do with now she's embracing the styles of that era she doesn't have her, her black helmet as they called it any more and, and her eyebrows are different and it's just it, so it's just like night and day for me watching that picture uh she just doesn't look the same at all like, aside from just the film being a throwaway. Unfortunately, it's it's not good at all.
0: Gotcha. Well, let's talk a little bit about where Papst was at this stage in his career because it seems like prior to these two films, Pandora's Box and Diary of a Lost Girl, that he had already made it quite a name for himself as doing these like women in crisis films, and that was kind of his go-to bread and butter style. And he'd worked with Greta Garbo and a bunch of great actresses. But what can you tell yeah. us about uh, Papst in the twenties? Because sadly. He eventually kind of got stuck in Germany. I think at one point he tried to flee in the 30s after working a little bit in France, tried to go to America and got scooped up and almost kind of got forced into working and making propaganda films for, uh, for Goebbels. For Hitler. Yeah, for Hitler. Yeah. yeah. He just said he didn't get out while the going was good. But obviously this is, um, this is long before all that, all that chaos and uncertainty. But uh, are you familiar with his stuff prior to these two movies?
1: Somewhat. Um, like the movie Joyless. With Garbo and the uh, Esther Nielsen Secrets of a Soul they did in 26. Um, but primarily, I think he hit his stride with Pandora's Box, and then afterwards, I think like right after Diary of Lost Girl, he did West Front, uh, 1918, which is wonderful. Um, he ended doing the Three Penny Opera. I feel like it was kind of right prior to Louise, Brook is, Louise Brooks entering his his life as a, as a filmmaker. Um, it, it's kind of it's kind of she almost kind of I think was the beginning of that that wonderful streak he had. But like I said, there was Joyless Street, which I remember really enjoying with Garbo. She is wonderful in that.
0: Gotcha. Um, well, it sounds like he found his muse when uh, Louis Brooks entered his life
1: Exactly. And that's what they say, that his muse was Louise and who
0: we just who we discussed last time, von Sternberg's,
1: was uh, Marlena Dietrich. And they, they were kind of, were Dietrich a little bit afterwards. But yeah.
0: But yeah, but think about it. If Dietrich had made Pandora's Box, that means no Blue Angel, which means no Morocco, yes. which means no Blonde Venus, no Scarlet Empress. I mean, the, ah. it would have changed Hollywood in the 30s so dramatically. And so I guess we're lucky that the two directors ended up working with actresses that were so ideally suited for the stories that they wanted to tell.
1: Yeah, and it's another he said Said, she said thing, I guess, or he said he said thing with uh, pops and uh, Nazi Germany, because when the, I think after the fact, when people were like, oh well, you you stayed in Germany for a while, especially when it was you know obviously Nazi Germany, uh, he has this long list of of reasons why. Uh, he wasn't involved with them. Oh, like this time I was really sick. And then when this was going on there, uh, you know, I had to leave because my father died. So, I, I, you know, I I kind of take it as the way that he behaved with certain actors that seemed to sympathize with the Nazis. He didn't seem to, to, to care or be interested in them, like on the making of Pandora's Brooks, which we'll discuss that he wasn't A part of of those politics, but he but he was there for for a lot of it and somewhat involved in that industry still making movies. Um, But like I said, I think in terms of his career, I think the highlights really are Louise Brooks uh, and then uh, afterwards, Three Penny Opera, which is
0: wonderful. Yeah, I've I've never seen the Bertolt Brecht uh, play.
1: I- yes. Yep. Yep. Based on, yep. Bertolt Brecht. Um, and it was a musical and then there's, gosh, I, I don't speak German, so I hope I don't butcher this, uh, Shaft, uh, which is right after that, which is also wonderful. I think Criterion just released that in West Front 1918 recently, so they should be on the channel for people to watch.
0: Very cool. Well, let's talk about Pandora's Box. I should mention this is one of Martin Kessler's all-time favorite movies, so you better do a good job talking about why this (laughs) movie is so amazing. But yeah, Yeah. the first time I saw this was at the New Beverly in Los Angeles, and I was high as a kite, and I barely remembered it. But what I did remember— which just those astonishing sequences of Luis Brooks. It's probably the best photography of the human back in movie history is in this movie. And on any given day on Twitter, if you look up, uh, you're going to find somebody posting a gif of that scene. It's a pretty legendary scene, but at Pandora's box, obviously in terms of plot, it's, Jam-packed with so much crazy shit going on. But if you can summarize <laughs> the, the, the overall story of Pandora's box.
1: Okay. Um, well, it's Frank Vedikins, I think I'm saying his last name correctly. It's his play. And uh Popst was on this search for his Lulu, and you mentioned who's who's the star of this play. She's the, the center part of the story. Um, he initially wanted Marlena Dietrich, who I think at the time she was 25, and he mentioned that she was too old, and if he picked her, then it turned into a burlesque
0: I guess late 20s if you're 25 it was like being like 45 today like people just aged in dog years back then
1: (laughs) yeah it's all the heavy drinking too I think um but anyways, uh, he said he saw her and a girl in every port and then
0: knew that she was
1: right for the part. Um, but what this story is, and it's what uh, Louise kind of said later in life, it's kind of she can really relate to. She is Lulu in, in every sense of the word. So she's kind of this beautiful, innocent um, woman who is brings about evil with her and kind of destroys men's lives. It's probably the easiest way to sum it up. Um, which is, you know,
0: obviously straight out of uh, Greek mythology is one of my favorite stories. But yeah, but with, the, with the opening of Pandora's box and all the evils released into the world. and yeah. But it seems like, god damn, in this movie, she's surrounded by a hell of a lot of evil to begin with. And so I, I wouldn't say she releases the evil, she definitely, but she definitely certainly seems to... Attract the. I mean, I've never seen a character in a movie attract more deadbeats and losers who have like gambling problems or like bad business ideas, mm-hmm. and everybody's always pestering her for cash and that sort of thing. So she just seems like like a like moths being drawn to a flame attracts all these narrow duels that are out to ruin her life. And so yes. I don't know if Pandora's box is entirely descriptive of her scenario because in the in the myth of Pandora's box, it's her curiosity which unleashes all these horrible evils into the world, and exactly. here. She doesn't seem like an evil person in any way, shape, or form, no, and she no. just gets uh, she gets dealt a hell of a lot of bad cards.
1: She does. And I think maybe um, she's applying the fact that she feels life gave her a, a deck of bad cards, if you will. I mean, going back to her early days, like her mother didn't like being a mother. Uh, she uh, her her mother, Myra Brooks, uh, essentially was one of those children, I guess it's a totally different time where your family your your parents have so many children, but so the oldest raise all the rest of the children's or her mother did that. So by the time, you know, she she had children, she essentially aside from playing the piano and, and for her, for her kids like Louise and letting them loose in their father's library. And they all became like voracious readers. She, she didn't really have a mother present in her life. So I think there's kind of that is a big part of it. She kind of feels like she's constantly on this, on this search for kind of belonging and being dealt like that. Like you said, you know, just bad situations and, and she's fear of rejection. So I think that's might be why she says she relates somewhat to Lulu in that regard. But yeah, I mean, that that character is different in that sense.
0: In now, how would you compare the overt sexuality of this flick to some of the, uh, the films we made in Hollywood? Cause obviously we've talked about how in pre-code Hollywood <laughs> uh- there They would explore more adult content, but this movie is just dripping with sexuality. It's just a very physical situation where whatever man she might be spending time with or entertaining, she's like doing pull-ups off his arm or whatever. But it's just a very – there's a lot of like wrestling and caressing and kind of grabbing. Everybody always seems to be kind of just on top of each other in this flick.
1: Yeah, especially um, with – excuse me, Fritz Kortner, who she's – Having a rela- She has some sort of relationship with, even though he's engaged to another woman. There's this one particular scene in the storeroom closet with the two of them. Uh, where she claims that when he shook her, she she actually he actually gave her bruises. He was shaking her so hard. There's that one particular scene where she's just you see her she's wearing a backless dress and you see the back of her neck and then the way that they ultimately at the end of her her him violently shaking her, uh, they embrace and there's something like that 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 scene deserves all of the praise it's had over these last 90 years. There's just something about when they're finally caught and the door opens and his his son and his fiance. Uh, kind of catch them in the act of embracing which you don't that I'm sure that would have gone much further with what this 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 movie is implying as as her as a person um just this look that she gives the two of them uh and, and then the, the what she does afterwards is prior to this she was refusing to go on stage and now i guess that she made an embarrassment and and Fritz's engagement's over she's all happy in the way she just kind of leaps out yeah, of the Yeah she room. doesn't want
0: to go on stage in front of the lover of this fella and then right. but then this guy ends up marrying her but yeah, it's like, but it's one of the, this movie is one of those crazy things where it seems I mean, it's got enough plot for like ten flicks, and like yeah. it's, it's divided up into like six or seven acts. And each act has some sort of horrible <laughs> tragedy or like catalyst for what comes next. In particular, yeah. this fucking maniac who ends up uh, kind of coming after her with a gun and asking her to kill herself, but he ends up like getting like shooting himself, and then she gets like put on trial yeah. for manslaughter, and then like yeah. running away and beating a hasty retreat. But there's all these like escapes, and she's always like the the cops are always on her tail. But there's just so much shit going on that you kind of need to read a synopsis. Before you even watch this, just so you can keep track of all the fucking moving pieces in the story
1: yeah it's very complex and 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 very extreme too. everything that happens um mentioning hollywood hollywood just didn't do this at the time Uh, i don't even think they're capable of doing it now because it's not simply just sex and violence there's there's this underlying there's this complexity to it um and even that scene where she accidentally ends up shooting uh fritz i just find it really amusing like apparently he didn't like her he was an established actor at the time and he was all ready and prepared for that whole scene like the blood that we were supposed to see dripping out of his mouth that only she ended up seeing because of the perspective with the camera uh, it was a chocolate sauce, and he was all upset that uh, that pops was constantly just focusing on her. As you remember that scene, all you see is like the smoke. You see his back the whole time, yeah. and you see just like the smoking gun when she accidentally fires it. So he's putting on supposedly this really dramatic. Uh, just a death scene and and we never see it. We just see her reaction. So I found that amusing too, that he's constantly, this entire movie, supposedly he was pissed off that he he wasn't really the focus of attention she was.
0: par for the course with actors. I mean, like one of the worst things you ever hear about with actors is how they'll do this trick where sometimes actors will deliberately do crummy takes when the camera's not on them, but when the camera's on their, uh, on their, whoever they're acting opposite and that when the camera's on them, they'll really shine so that they can kind of stacked a deck in their favor that in the cutting room they're more likely to use those takes where they're being shot actors have all these like these dumb tricks but in in the end a lot of them are just spoiled children who need attention (laughs) and are very fragile and very needy and very (laughs) insecure and so but it seems like what i love with the freshman louise brooks is that she just seems to have had this just this natural confidence that she just exuded and it absolutely just shines through on the screen
1: it's wonderful. She said she loved working with Pops because she, he directed her with decency and respect, uh, unlike an example. She didn't care for William Ullman because he was making her jump all over trains. Uh, but uh, and she said that his style with her was different versus how it was with the other actors like uh, Alice Robert, I think is how you say her name, who kind of who plays like she I think she's like her lesbian lover at one point in the film. Apparently one
0: of the first lesbians ever on screen.
1: Yeah, and uh, when what's funny is there's a joke there. Like I think she initially didn't know that that's what she was playing.
0: Same, same thing happened on Faster Pussy Got Kill Kill, where uh, not Tursatana but Haji, who plays her girlfriend in it, they yeah. started shooting, and Haji didn't realize that she was the uh, kind of the more subservient uh, <laughs> bottom to Tursatana's top. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but back to Pops, like, apparently all of the scenes where uh, Alice is supposed to be looking lovin- lovingly at Louise, at Lulu, she's actually acting with Pops, <laughs> who is
0: oh, gotcha. looking
1: lovingly back at her. She said that was the only way she was able to do it.
0: Well, there's a really <laughs> interesting scene where Lulu sees a guy, basically a guy saying, look, give me $20,000 or I'm going to call the cops and they're going to come grab you. And so yeah. uh, Lulu convinces this girl who's in love with her to go over and basically flirt with the guy in order to distract him, But the scene, but the way she does that is incredibly seductive. And it's like, they're they're very close. And there's this incredible erotic tension between the two characters, which you just don't see in late 20s Hollywood movies. I mean, like every once in a while, like in Morocco, there's a scene where like Marlena Dietrich, who's dressed up like in a top hat and like men's and a men's tuxedo, kisses a girl and things like that. But it's uh, it's pretty rare. It's very
1: rare actually. yeah. Yeah. And I can think of, I think, was it Garbo Queen Christina, where you kind of saw that a little bit. But yeah, um, it, especially the the just, I guess it has to be just the style of acting that Pops was able and what he was able to bring out of his actors, because there's just something so real to it. Like there's it points to this movie where I don't really feel like I, I guess that's where the modern acting uh, applies. Like it, I just don't really feel like I'm watching people in the 20s and in, in, in a silent picture. It just feels incredibly modern, like somebody's really shooting people in their everyday lives somewhat just just her the relationships on screen that are shown to us
0: now have you ever been tempted in a state of drunkenness to imitate her style get the get the black helmet (laughs) the shiny black helmet
1: (laughs) a little bit not gonna lie yeah absolutely
0: it's a strong look it's a wonderful
1: look and it's it's very modern and she does not look like a 20 s actress at all to me
0: no, not at all Well, let's talk a little bit about the the ending because this movie it's this insane roller coaster ride and then toward the end of the film, it suddenly takes this like sharp ninety degree turn into this like really dark misty Horror movie where she's working as a prostitute in London, and ends up yep. bumping into fucking Jack the Ripper of all people. <laughs> <laughs> and and she's been really sweet, and her yeah. eyes are gl- uh, glittering, and there's like starlight in her eyes. And she, I mean, she's got the, the best smile in movie history. Her smile is just so charming. It's like a Jack Nicholson smile. It's so winning. And you can see Jack the Ripper <laughs> kind of falling under her spell, and he's holding this fucking horrible knife behind him, and he ends up putting it down at least in the short term. Because short she, yeah, she agrees to take him up your room in spite of the fact of him not having any money. Yep. But then when they get there, sadly there is a knife there, but I mean, you're talking about a grim, dark, bleak ending to this roller rollercoaster movie, but where the hell did this come from? I mean, was that a part of the source material? Like just the idea of inserting Jack the Ripper into the final scene to murder the the lead is just totally bananas.
1: It is bananas. I, I've, I've, honestly, I haven't read the play or ever or seen it or anything. So I, I couldn't tell you. I, I do know though that their chemistry It was real in real life. So she was attracted to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she (laughs) said that that she was very attracted to him, and supposedly they were like there's some shenanigans, like when the when the camera
0: wasn't rolling underneath the table. Naughty, naughty.
1: Yeah, exactly. A little
0: little squeezing of the knees.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I kind of I feel like that that's but honestly, in terms of that end scene, I mean, spoilers, I know it's 90 years old, he does, in fact, kill her. Um, and it's kind of done in this really grotesque, but somewhat beautiful manner, the way that you see her her die, the way that he kind of, she kind of squeezes his shoulder. Um, I feel that and, and, and she said this as well. And I agree, like it kind of should have ended there. It kind of goes from there back to the streets of London, and then you see a letterer kind of uh,
0: going off in like uh, some parade or whatever. On.
1: Yeah, so I found that a little odd.
0: Yeah, just for me, structurally, it was unusual to have Jack the Ripper enter the story without him being teased. Let, let me ask you: like, is his presence teased at any point early in the movie? Because I guess the earliest example I see used is a newspaper article saying like women and young girls should not be on the streets alone at yeah, night. don't blah, be blah, out blah. at night, right? But if I if I'm if I'm doing a movie. I'm going to have my lead character killed by Jack the Ripper. At some point earlier in the movie, I would at least tease – do a deep tease that he is on the scene, so to speak.
1: Right. I guess somebody reading a newspaper and zooming into the headlines, something. And yeah, no, there's there's, I've, – I've seen this movie quite a few times now. Um, no, the, I, the, he just really just comes up at the end when she's in London working as a prostitute and living in that kind of destitute apartment. <laughs>
0: Well, for people out there who maybe are on the fence because it's a silent movie, make <laughs> a case for why Pandora's Box is so special. Because I feel like for silent film historians, there's a, a list of movies like Passion of Joan of Arc and Sunrise and you know, Nosferatu, like and these, like these major, major silent movies that really are kind of like the, the the spine of why this period is so fascinating. Why does Pandora's Box belong in the in the, in their like this hallowed company? Because for a lot of silent film buffs. This is the 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 top of the heap when it comes to silent film art.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, because there's the Criterion Channel now, and it's readily readily available on there, so you don't have to spend a lot of money on the out of
0: print Criterion
1: disc. I think it's like over a hundred dollars now. I used on Amazon, um, but aside and don't from don't watch that, it on
0: YouTube because the quality is pure ass.
1: Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, I mean, if this helps, I mean, I know when people became interested again in, in silent films, when finally a lot of them were getting their due, like when the, when the Louise Brooks cult kind of came about in the 60s, if, if I'm correct. Um, they There were a few cinemas in, in Paris, one in particular, that there was an event that Louise was invited to, and they were showing, and they had posters side by side of Maria Falconetti uh, in Passion of Joan of Arc, and then the... A, like The poster right next to it was Louise and Pandora's box. Europe is kind of when Pandora's box was initially released, um, people in the United States didn't see it. And it was heavily edited in some countries to kind of a disgusting degree where they just kind of ripped it apart. And but uh, Germany and Paris were in love with her. And they felt that they were some of the greatest movies ever, even though initially a lot of the critics felt that Pandora's box is, she's not acting because they weren't used to that type of, of style of acting at the time. They expected, I guess, things a lot more exaggerated. Um, it kind of stands out as as this, it, it, in my opinion, it's a masterpiece simply because of how modern a lot of it is and what Pops gets from his actors that I just haven't seen in, in a, most of the movies that I've watched. He somehow gets this he kind of added like the depth of their soul gets them to become these characters or gets these emotions out of them that I just don't how do you do that a lot of from what I understand like Lubitsch kind of would act out a scene for all of his actors and show them how to do the scene or Goulding with Garbo was known to for Grand Hotel to kind of walk out into the, middle of the hotel and show her how he wanted to walk out and Pops kind of did it differently with each actor and I think that kind of is there one of the reasons why Pandora's box is so wonderful. Peter Bogdanovich
0: tells a story about how, when he was interviewing Jack Benny at one point and he was asked to be or not to be and Lubitsch, how he would, he'd heard these stories about how Lubitsch would act things out. And he's like, (laughs) but was Lubitsch, like, was he good? And Jack Benny apparently said, well, he was a little broad, (laughs) but you got the idea. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So so he's got to know what you want.
1: Exactly. So I I think it might have been that style and also the fact that it's not Hollywood and it doesn't have all of these ridiculous censorship kind of constraints involved with it. It was kind of allowing them to, we've said this with pre-code, kind of show people as they really are and not be afraid to focus on you know, they're they're uh, they're 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 basically what makes them different in their choices in society. So there's so many different layers to I think why this movie is absolutely wonderful.
0: Well, luckily uh, it wasn't a one-off. They decided to grace us with another movie, Diary of a Lost Girl, also in 1929. Yeah. So we got a we got a two for the price of one with the with this director actress combo. And while this might not necessarily be as famous as Pandora's Box. I think there's maybe fucking rules and is equally deranged in its own wonderful, beautiful way. And there's something about this style strange. of storytelling where it's just you're divided up into all these different acts and chapters, and each one seems to be more bizarre and more strange than the one that preceded it. But it set the stage for it or set the table. What the hell is going on in Diary of a Lost Girl?
1: essentially a young and innocent girl is seduced by a pharmacist or is he a chemist of some sort and she ends up uh, out of wedlock having a baby and then being sent off to this ridiculous reform school <laughs> and separated from her child. And the highlights of the movie, for me at least, are her in this in this reform school. And then after the fact, when the opposite extreme happens, when she escapes and now she's in a much more loving place, which happens to be a brothel. So that's kind of, I think, a good summary of, of Diary of a Lost Girl.
0: And then the um, – um, but it- – Unlike the previous movie where she got murdered by Jack the Ripper, here she actually does get a little payback, a little revenge, and ends up running the reform school that yes. she where she was previously enslaved.
1: Exactly, <laughs> and uh, the, I think honestly, I think the whole reason why, uh, from what I understand from from reading uh, pops what pops had to say about it, this movie happened because he was just in love with her and they had a one night stand, and then it was like, you know what, I have another project for you. Please, <laughs> I think it was I love really
0: you. That I love you. Please, don't yeah. get back to you. Know. States. God, please
1: make another movie
0: with me. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, I, yeah. I mean I mean you can't it's a tale as old as time itself where you have artists, whether they are painters or sculptors <laughs> or writers who are inspired by a great beauty and do some of their finest work in their honor. And so I'm I'm thrilled that he was to had a, a case of puppy love because it gave us another great GW Papsch flick. And yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed this, but those scenes in the reform school where you have the girl running the place. Like almost like maniacally kind strong. of like beating this drum and like everybody's like eating in unison. It reminded me a little bit of like the scenes from like the King Vito film, like the crowd where you have like everybody working in this giant office environment yeah. where yeah. you just have... Like people, or like, or some of the scenes in Metropolis when they're all working on the strange dials and machines, yeah. Where you or have for me,
1: this, Yeah,
0: <laughs> but like the like the yeah. automation of like of human beings, and just obviously Lulu does. I'm not. Lu, I'm calling her Lulu. Louis Brooks' character yeah, doesn't Lulu. fit in at all. But there, I love. There's a guy in there who looks like he could have been my great grandfather. This big, crazy, lurking, bald dude. It's like a, a society of women and within, but you have this one just. Lurch, who's kind of like (laughs) leering and hanging out. The hills
1: have eyes, yeah. Yeah, It also
0: reminds me a bit of like, did you ever see uh, Switchblade Sisters, the Jack Hill flick?
1: I have not. There's a
0: scene early on where all the girls and you you would love it. It's just about girl gangs and like the politics within their groups. But uh, at one point they all get thrown in a a reform school early on because they're all teenagers. And the women who run this prison are a bunch of like you know rapists and they're just totally psychotic. And eventually the girls have to all team up and like protect each other and beat the crap out of these girls that are trying to like rape them with nightsticks and things like that. But we're we're almost kind of in that in that territory. But when they're doing their reform school exercises and the girls banging the lid and. You can tell she's almost getting off on the calisthenics they're having to go through. It was some really sadistic, weird stuff.
1: Yeah, Louise, call that scene the orgasm scene.
0: <laughs> she's clearly <laughs> having. She's mul- she is, she's ridiculous. achieving multiple orgasms in that scene. Yeah, it's not nice. Louise, but the uh, the I guess whatever you call the the warden of this particular the reform school. And
1: I'm having a total mind blank on uh, her. I found this really amusing. It was Edith something Meinhard maybe who who, ran, who runs the reform school. I could be wrong on that. Um, I know that offset like or she asked uh Louise Brooks out on more than one occasion. So I thought that was kind of funny cause Actually, because in playing. the movie she's
0: always groping and grabbing the girls in a very inappropriate way.
1: Yeah, and and they're there for for those reasons obviously, you know, being a menace to society or whatever. Uh Louise's family thinks that she is at that point. Um But aside from that, I also found it interesting. I didn't mention it with Pandora's box. uh, Just, I guess, a little bit of fact for these films. uh, Most of what Louise wears in both of them are actually her clothes. Interesting. So that's yeah so that scene like pops like would, would go through uh, I guess her her trunk and kind of try to figure out what she was gonna wear for each scene. Uh, so the beginning scene where she's supposed to meet the the chemist or the pharmacist when he's wrote in her diary be down at ten thirty uh, she's wearing her robe that she likes to wear in the evenings.
0: interesting. Well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about her period working in a uh, house of ill repute, but is it kind of an interesting almost. Like induction ceremony, when she first arrives, now everybody's kind of standing around in a circle watching her take her first d- drinks of like a glass of champagne. and it's mm-hmm. almost it's like it's very ritualized as they're inducting her into the ranks. but the the scenes in the brothel feature one of the weirdest scenes of any movie from the uh, from the silent era, where she's doing this thing where she's essentially like showing off some of her exercises and some of her moves and this is really strange guy with a beard kind of leering at her and doing like little like gestures and like what what is your read on that particular scene
1: honestly it kind of reminded me almost like a reverse of like the 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 reform school in a sense and kind of like somewhat of a revenge element to that i don't know if that's how you read it james but i kind of got that that was kind of just like she's just kind of almost getting him back in a sense
0: almost like she's like turning the exercises from the reform school into like a form of like self-expression. Like exactly, if I own this rigorous routine I had to do, then it's no longer being imposed upon me.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and I kind of get that because there's a little bit of that I'm a professional dancer even vibe to to both movies, Diary of a Lost Girl and Pandora's Box, which initially Pop said he was like really impressed. He had no idea that she was a dancer. That was kind of a surprise. Yeah, she's thing. a trapeze
0: artist in uh, in Pandora's Box. So yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So that's kind of how I took that. It was an element of of somewhat of a
0: wrench. Yeah. As I was watching it, I was like, all right. Of all the scenes that would be useful on Twitter, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna grab this scene right now and just save it because it's just so bonkers and so bizarre that I think it'll it'll attract people's attention.
1: Oh absolutely. As opposed to as much as I love uh, a few other scenes that people like showing on Twitter like the wings like tracking shot or a Pandora's box with her in, in the closet. it's another one that should be up there online.
0: <laughs> well uh, what do you think about as some of the kind of the latter scenes where she's almost kind of embraced or kind of gotten into her new lifestyle but she's in a nightclub hanging out with the boys and who should see her in action but her father?
1: You know what? It's funny because it kind of it, it somewhat reminds me a lot of, of the bad girl pre-code kind of uh, the way of rebelling somewhat. Uh, it, it, even though it's like a, a year before, maybe maybe a few years before in Hollywood, um, I kind of. It also reminded me a lot of of some personal stories she had, where she would just she was just known in nightclubs, Louise, to just tell people off. I mean, there's there's a story uh, where she took a uh, basically a bunch of roses that Pops gave her. Um, and what she was known to do and just slashed somebody across the face with it. Uh, Townsend, I think, at the time. Uh, so she just kind of has this rebellious nature and she said she was playing herself <laughs> in Diary of a Lost Girl and in Pandora's Box. That's kind of how I took it. It was just kind of, this is just Louise and this is how she is <laughs> in the evening. She just kind of tells people off and, and likes getting revenge on people. At the end of her life, it's whether or not it's true, I guess nobody knows, uh, but it's likely that when she was somewhat destitute and forgotten, that she became an escort and was working for an escort service for a little while on the Lower East
0: Side. So what would you say is the enduring uh, kind of cinema legacy of uh, of the great Louise Brooks? Because obviously it seems like she's got this incredible cult status and she's got a couple of masterpieces to her name, which is more than a lot of people can lay claim to. But I don't know if yeah. anybody's going to say, oh, well, she's up there with Greta Garbo or she's up there with like these these great legendary actresses. But where do you as a fan place her in the, the pantheon of the great silent film? movie stars
1: That famous quote there is no garbo there is no dietrich there's only louise brooks um i kind of feel that there's all three <laughs> i mean uh, equal importance because they're all just so different from each other and they brought so much to to the movies then and even now and they're exciting to watch again and again and they're exciting to rediscover um because I'm kind of somewhat in agreement with the idea that the star, the star element, the star system in Hollywood is is somewhat at an end. I feel like, uh, if not already over, um, as as much as there's a lot of people that are recognizable now, I don't really feel there's a lot of moving ahead, if you will, in terms of styles and industry and, and characters and well, perfect examples you know
0: like Chris Hemsworth, who has never had a hit in his life unless he's Playing the character Thor like they've tried him in race car movies they've tried him in whale hunting movies they've tried him in Michael Mann thrillers they've tried him in every yes. kind of film imaginable and none of them take off but for whatever reason when he puts on the armor and starts talking in that fake Shakespearean dialogue people just fucking love him and <laughs> it's just like yeah. they can't get enough of him. yeah so yeah the franchises are the stars these days it's hard to think of any young stars who are in their 20s and 30s where irrespective of the vehicle People should, they take like Kristen Stewart. Obviously, during the Twilight movies, she was a massive celebrity. She was on the cover of all the magazines and she works with a lot of great artists these days and a lot of great filmmakers. But these are small, micro budget art house films that have a small, devoted audience, but they don't have this right. like, giant kind of cultural impact it's hard to think of who are the like Jennifer Lawrence. I feel like for a little while there, but was becoming a pretty big movie star, but then she took like a year off of acting to fix our broken democracy. As she said, so <laughs> it's like if you if you if, yeah. you, if you, if you do that, people stop, <laughs> people stop thinking about you as a movie star <laughs> and that sort of thing. So yeah, does the star system as we knew it from like the teens through the nineties is pretty much at an end. But I remember in the nineties, Julia Roberts, People would go see the latest Julia Roberts movie, whether it was *Notting right. Hill* or *Pelican Brief* or whatever. They didn't care what the story was; they just wanted to see Julia Roberts. And that right. era seems to be over.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you its, it's funny. You really try to think about all of the, the actors right now that are—that are younger, uh, and and mean um, you know uh, Natalie Portman might come to mind, but I. I, I do like her, but I don't go race to see her movies. I actually race to go see a particular director or a particular franchise. Um, but maybe that's just because I like movies. I don't know what the the average movie going public might do. Um,
0: yeah, but, I think yeah. like Pixar is a movie star, Marvel is a movie exactly. star, like, Disney I, now. <laughs> Blumhouse and like A24 on a smaller scale. But like they're definitely these little niche brands. But yeah. it is incredible how fundamentally everything has changed. And I don't know why the star system faded because people still are like star fuckers and they still worship like athletic celebrities and they still worship political celebrities. They still worship celebrities. It's just interesting that you no longer can have someone like Denzel Washington or Will Smith or Tom Cruise or whomever who just by virtue of being in a movie can guarantee a certain amount of box office and I don't, it was just a, such an interesting transition because obviously in the mid late '90s it was all about like who were those actors who can be guaranteed twenty million dollars to appear in a movie and that was a list of like Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler and there there are a handful of people on that list and maybe that's right. what ultimately broke it it's just the movies became prohibitively expensive to make.
1: That's true. And you mentioned Tom Cruise, obviously, but, and and then he does wonderful movies like Mission Impossible Fallout, which makes a ton of money. And then he does things like the mummy, you
0: know, just like Alex Kurtzman rearing his ugly head (laughs) yet again.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for, she just, it's, it's just something about her presence on screen, Louise, um, something that Maria Falconetti in Passion of Joan of Arc does for me and, and something that Louise obviously does in her Pops films. Uh, it, it, it's something that Marlena Dietrich does in the Von Sternberg films. I mean, it's just this, there's this glorious Swanson in her eyes. Uh, there's it, just something about a lot of these people, maybe because it was that transition, um, from uh, talkies to sound, in particular, these individual people, and so there was more of a focus in zooming in on their face and kind of giving the film time. I guess the pacing is a big part of that. But they, they just kind also of you know, mysterious
0: about the silent film stars, like because we never yeah. hear them, we can project so many characteristics onto them it's like they it exactly. gives them this incredible larger than life legendary historical mystique and i don't mm-hmm. know if people felt that way in the late 20s but looking back on these movies now that are 90 years old and it's just they're so otherworldly and so strange and we know so yes. little about her that i think it, it if they have some sort of strange ineffable quality it somehow makes them like bigger than life and that's for that's me true. where she feels like louise brooks just she feels bigger than life
1: yeah. And she's just and she always said she's just a small town Kansas girl and, and, and who was a terrible actress. And she even made fun of her own dancing at the end. Uh, so she's just hard on herself. So, yeah, just just thinking about that. They're just in the end. They're just, just obviously normal people. But they have the, the this this luck, if you will, and in and this talent. And, and they were from this this era, which kind of uh, at this point in time we're starting to we mentioned it with pre-code we're just starting to get this flow of talent from europe affecting our industry i i think kind of all of that was just perfect time perfect place lightning in a bottle kind of in, in a sense
0: now are there any remaining Louis brooks films that you have seen that you love that you want to recommend as we start drawing this to a close <laughs>
1: That I love? Oh, gee. Um, it's re- honestly, the highlights are the ones that we covered, in particular Pandora's Box. Um, I would also recommend A Girl in Every Port. It's, it's just interesting. Good old um, Howard and,
0: Hawks. I love him. I've actually yeah. never seen that one. I've seen the scenes involving Louis Brooks, but I haven't seen the film in its entirety.
1: Yeah, and and, and pre-debut is another one. And that one, I haven't seen that in so long. Um, It's, I think, the only French film she did. At one point, she was supposed to do a a movie with Renée Clare, and she ended up not doing that. That didn't work out financially. Um, I wish she did. It probably would have been, like, wonderful. Like, his... uh, I don't I don't speak French either Le million. maybe I'm saying that right oh, yeah, I but,
0: but in the early 30s yeah Rene Claire was at the top of his game just,
1: yeah um, so I, I would have loved to that's kind of something I wish that did happen that unfortunately did not um kind of just like Yodarowsky's dune which I wish happened um trying to think uh, also uh, you know, maybe The Canary Murder Case. Uh, that movie is, is it's borderline awful, but it's just interesting because it's very young William Powell. It's the first real detective.
0: That's an awesome movie poster. It's like she's sitting there with his, like green hand coming yeah. up behind a curtain to to pluck at her necklace or her dress. So yeah. It's, and uh, it's just,
1: it's, yeah. It's fun too to point out because like, she refused to really help them finish it when they wanted to convert it into a sound picture. So you just know listening to it that it's not her voice which i find amusing and then they just decide to in some particular scenes focus on a different actor because it's not her or every once in a while you'll notice that it's a double with her black helmet you're like that's not really her and it's, it's kind of trying to fill in as her. so there's just interesting elements
0: to it well will you commit here on on the internet to trying to experiment with the black helmet at some point in the <laughs> next year just for everybody's viewing pleasure
1: I will definitely consider it. Absolutely.
0: Excellent. <laughs> well, anything else going on in the world of your movie consumption and or gaming that you want to bring us up to speed on as we draw this episode to a close? Obviously, as soon as we finish, I'm diving right back into the world of Sekiro Shadows Die Twice because I'm totally fucking obsessed. But uh, you got any, <laughs> any, anything else on your to-do list? On my
1: to-do list right now, it's it's going back to Sekiro and uh, I'm going to be playing a lot of Cuphead on the Switch.
0: Nice. Since now that That's is a cool game. I, I really enjoyed it
1: yeah it is wonderful i played it on the xbox one but it finally made that transition i think it's like a perfect handheld uh, way to play it might be easier might be more difficult who knows um and uh, obviously uh, checking out borderlands 3 i'm super excited for now, that what's the
0: release date of borderlands 3 it's
1: sometime in august um i can
0: check fighting cowboy a youtuber a gamer uh, on youtube that i follow he recently has started uh posting his uh, his let's play of borderlands three but i've been using his walkthrough guide on uh secure shadow side uh, twice in order to make sure that i don't miss any gear or items and just making sure that i get as many of those damn prayer beads as possible early on because that obviously yeah. gives you a, a massive advantage but yeah fighting cowboy's he got like 550,000 subscribers he's got a pretty robust Ridiculous. um uh base but he is playing Borderlands three right now and seems to be digging it
1: um, I was wrong. It says September 13. Oh, so it's gotcha.
0: so plenty of time yeah. to, of time. Uh, to, to finish all the content and Shadow die twice. Well, where can people find you online? If they want to talk about Luis Brooks or video games or whatever the case might be. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at W Mass And can people follow any of your gaming exploits or is it pretty much like just like your buddies that you give out that, uh, like your, your gamer tag too?
1: Oh, I'm happy to give out my gamer tag. Um, it's a uh, simp for the devil, uh, as in the Rolling Stones and Guns N' Roses song, uh, the four is just the number four. Um, I would friend you on PlayStation Network or Xbox Live. I'm mostly on PlayStation. Um, and I think that gamer tag and my Switch handle are on my Twitter account if you're interested.
0: Just any plans on posting any of your gaming exploits on the internet at any point? Yeah, we, we discussed this, I think, a little last
1: time. Um, I'm thinking of possibly doing um, a like retro or indie series because I'm a huge fan of. Um, you should uh, do a, a Mega Man 2
0: playthrough. Just a Mega yeah, Man 2 guide to how to get to, yeah. to, to, to finish that classic meat grinder
1: (laughs) speaking of cheesing bosses there's a glitch that works in the recent emulation of the second one with the yellow devil which is the
0: final boss it still works
1: on the emulated version with pausing yeah um so yeah absolutely
0: excellent well amanda always a pleasure and a privilege talking with you on wrong reel and thanks for pitching this topic i thoroughly enjoyed revisiting her films It had been forever since i I met it probably been Twenty years since I've seen anything with Louis Brooks, so uh, it, I, I always like uh, you know upping my game on areas where I am uh, woefully ignorant, etc. But if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast, leaving a rating review. If you want some video content, you can hunt me down on YouTube at Geekin with James Hancock. We recently had a big live stream with uh, Bill Scurry and Adam Rakoff talking about James Cameron, specifically the Abyss. But what was cool is that like ten to twenty people that from Twitter and Wrong Real contributors. All jumped into the chat and they're all hanging out and talking about movies and that sort of thing. So that was a ton of fun. So definitely check that out. Coming up in the near future, we got some whoppers. We're going to do a huge Mickey Rourke episode. We got a giant 1954 episode. We got a huge Steven Soderbergh episode. So these are ones that just require me watching dozens of of fucking (laughs) flicks. So I got to get back to work on that. But hope you'll be back for all of the above. But you can find me on Twitter at Colbrax. And can't thank you enough for listening. So more importantly, as as always onwards and upwards.
1: Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do.
0: You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your
1: lips together and
0: blow.